John chapter 19. And we read, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lots who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's just pray. Father, we recognize every time we look at passages that relate to the cross of Jesus Christ, that there we see your heart open for us, the greatness of your love demonstrated to us. And Lord, help us to just stand in awe and wonder as we recognize all that you've done for us. Help us to be ready tonight to respond to the greatness of your gift. Help us to respond in faith this night, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, I know I've probably shared this with you before, but it fits, so I'm going to share it again this evening. I just want to say, if I share it again, though, let me know, and I promise that I'll bring Murray Tyrell forward. Okay. But Arthur Blessett, some of you remember him. He was a real Christian celebrity in the, in the late 1970s, 80s on. And he was famous for carrying around on his shoulders a life-size cross. Now, during our time in Shetland, around 2000, 2001, he arrived there. And I learned that 
that though he's out of the limelight now, that he still continues to carry his cross around the world. And he's a, he's a big man, he's a big personality, and at that time, with his blonde hair and handlebar moustache, he kind of reminded me of Hulk Hogan, the wrestler. But what he told us about the, the night I heard him was of a, a National Geographic trip that went out to an unreached tribe in one of the jungles of South America, and their mission was to go and, and take pictures, try to make a film about the life of this mysterious hidden people. And when they reached this tribe, eventually after days of trekking through the jungle, everything looked exactly as they hoped it would. Primitive tribal life, untouched, unspoiled by modern civilization, except for when they got a little bit closer. And then they noticed that everyone in this tribe, who otherwise were almost totally naked, had a smile, Jesus loves you sticker stuck on them somewhere on their body. You see, Arthur Blissett, complete with his cross, had passed through that village a week or so before. Now, don't ask me how he did it. I don't know. But he did. However, you know, in, in studying for, for tonight, I, I came across a detail that, you know, actually leads me to believe that Arthur Blissett actually has got things slightly wrong in his cross-carrying. Nothing too serious. It doesn't detract from his achievements, but I'll, I'll share it with you a little bit later. But there's one additional detail, though, that we find in, in John 19. One detail about the cross where John, again, differs slightly in the way he tells the, the story of the cross from the other gospel writers. That I just want to focus on for a moment or two with you, because I, I believe it highlights the theme that is central to this passage. In, in fact, it really highlights again the theme that I believe is central to John's gospel. And that is, notice in verse 17, it says, Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. However, you see, in the other gospels, we're told that along the way that the soldiers commandeered the man, Simon of Cyrene, when Jesus collapsed exhausted and made him carry the cross. Now, there's no real difficulty in, in fitting all this together in that Jesus began carrying the cross, but when he reached the gate of the city, he just collapsed. As a result of the brutal flogging, that he'd endured and the subsequent blood loss that came from that. And it was then that, that Simon of Cyrene was conscripted into service. But the question is, why does John choose not to mention Simon? Because there's no doubt that John knew about Simon's involvement. So why then no mention of it? Quite simply, because this would detract from one of John's main themes. The theme that is central to his telling of the story of the passion of Jesus Christ. And that is that God is in control. That God is sovereign. That God is king at the cross. With his kingship being demonstrated supremely there in the humble obedience 
of the Son, the King, who knowing what was before him, yet willingly in love, carried his cross to that place where he would give his perfect sinless life in order to pay the penalty of all our sin, of our sin that emerges from our willful rebellion against God, our willful rejection of God and of his ways. So you see, while John doesn't ignore in any sense the suffering and the anguish, the weakness and pain that were very much part of Jesus' experience on the cross, yet his emphasis is that through it all and in the midst of it all, Jesus was king. And so he arranges his telling of the gospel in such a way as to emphasize that. So he says rightly that Jesus carried the cross. And quite simply, amidst the secondary and possibly distracting detail from the perspective of his purpose, that later he received help along the way. Our focus, though, is going to be on Jesus our King. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Jesus, our King, beginning by looking at our suffering King. Now, as far as the the suffering of Jesus is concerned, we've already looked recently, just a, a few weeks ago, at the kind of beating that Jesus would have received even before that cross was hoisted onto his shoulder. The very batio. And that was the most brutal flogging in one of the cruelest ages in human history that the imperial Roman government could administer. Where a man was stripped and then tied to a post and was then flogged with a whip made of leather thongs, studded with spikes or chains made of bone or metal. With this flogging then continuing until one of three things happened. Either the soldiers doing the flogging collapsed, exhausted, Or the person being flogged died even before crucifixion could take place, which happened not infrequently. But the third alternative was probably the most likely, that the commanding officer would call a halt to the proceeding. But not before at times, as eyewitness accounts tell us, this flogging left at the victim's bones and very entrails exposed. And then after this, the cross was hoisted then onto the victim's shoulders to be carried to the place of crucifixion. And this incidentally is where Arthur Blessed and other cross carriers frequently, I think, go wrong because it was actually only the horizontal cross piece of the cross that was carried. It wasn't the entire cross. Because you see, as crucifixions were relatively common then, the vertical upright posts were permanently left in position at the the execution site here, just outside the city. And once there, Jesus would be laid on this cross piece, with iron nails being driven through the top of each of his wrists. And then probably with the aid of a rope pulley, this cross piece would then be lifted up and attached to the vertical post. Now, often on this this post, there was a little piece of wood that would serve as a, a kind of inadequate seat that the victim could be placed on as the, as the nails were then driven through their feet to hold them 
in position. But please don't misinterpret that seat as some kind of act of kindness. Because you see, crucifixion was essentially death by suffocation. It was a long, slow, agonizing process of suffocation that at times could last for days. You see, the body position of a person being crucified meant that their chest would be constricted. And they would then pull themselves up as far as they could to try and get relief. And eventually, they would go back down, exhausted. And so that process would continue on and on with that little wooden shelf type seat that they would obviously scrabble and fight their way onto and then simply slip back off of. With this designed to increase the agony, to prolong it, to make it last longer. And so this went on and on until in one way or another, the victim died of exhaustion. You see that? is what Jesus suffered physically as he hung on that cross and died for us. Died because he loved us and because he knew that this was the only way to deal with that sin that separates us from a holy God. And of course, we also know that Jesus also suffered tremendously emotionally at the cross as well, despised and mocked by his enemies and abandoned and deserted by his friends. With all of this though, his physical suffering, his emotional suffering, being in relative terms insignificant in comparison to what he suffered spiritually on the cross. For as he hung there, and took our sin upon his shoulders, there at that moment in time, as he hung covered in our sin, then the Father, holy and perfect and sinless, turned his back upon the sin that he could not look on. Turned his back for that moment upon the Son. And so the perfect fellowship between Father and Son that stretches back through all eternity was broken, leading Jesus then to cry out that terrible cry of dereliction from the cross. Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you see, Jesus knew why for this moment he was abandoned. He knew it was because he was paying the price of our sin. And he knew as well that this agony would ultimately lead to victory. But still, this agony was such. The spiritual pain of this separation was so intense that this cry there was torn from his lips. But in his suffering, he was king. There to be seen as king for those with eyes to see more than perhaps at any other time. Which is underlined, was underlined by Pilate in that notice that he had fastened to the cross of Christ. Verse 19 and 20. It says, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 
And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now this sign provokes the kind of response you'd expect from the, the Jewish hierarchy. They're outraged that Jesus should in this way be publicly proclaimed as their king. They want this changed. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. However, don't let Pilate's order that this sign be made originally or his refusal to back down to the Jewish demands that it be altered. Don't let this fool you into imagining that this was in some way some kind of last minute tribute by Pilate. This was some kind of expression of regret, of some kind of emerging spiritual understanding of who he actually had before him and the enormity of what he'd done. I don't believe it was that, no, rather, this is his small-minded way at getting back at the Jews, who he felt had threatened him and then tried to undermine him at the trial of Jesus. You see, he's mocking them here. Standing as he is, clothed with the power of imperial Rome. That here is their king. This weak, helpless, broken man. As Carson says here, Pilate's firmness is not motivated by principle and strength of character, but by the obstinacy and bitter rage of a man who feels set upon. He is determined to humiliate those who have humiliated them, him. And yet here, by God's sovereign purpose, still here Pilate proclaims and, par- and parades truth that is beyond his understanding. For you see, that notice that proclaims Jesus as the King of the Jews, that notice is written in Aramaic. Basically the Hebrew of the common man. It's written in Latin, the language of the Roman army and the Roman government. The language then of military and political power. And it was written in Greek, then the language associated with art and with philosophy. Here then Jesus Christ is proclaimed as Lord, proclaimed as King of all men over every area of life. And nowhere is he seen more clearly as king to the spiritually perceptive, the spiritually discerning than in that suffering on the cross. As there, the Lord of heaven and earth, there the Lord of all, there the Lord of glory, as there he willingly and in love gave himself for us. You see, there, in that humble self-giving, there is kingship and majesty beyond compare. So Jesus is revealed then here as our suffering king. But he's also revealed as our compassionate king. And this revolves around those wonderful words of Jesus from the cross. We're close to his his dying breath. He commits his mother 
to the care, verse 26, of the disciple whom he loved. But this traditionally, and I believe correctly, being assumed to be John, John the author of this gospel, here displaying a, a kind of humble reticence to mention his own name. But you know, I actually discovered something this week that I'd never realized before, never. And that is that in the other gospel accounts, there are just three women who are mentioned as being near the cross of Jesus. You see, the others don't mention his mother, Mary. But they do mention specifically Mary Magdalene. And they do mention Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, you see, what that would mean is that the other person who in Mark 15, 40, the other woman is named as Salome and also in Matthew 27, 56, is identified as the mother of James and John, the author of this gospel. Well, you see, here in John we're told that she was, verse 25, his mother's sister. That is Jesus' mother, which would then make John Jesus' cousin. And in addition, that would explain John's reluctance here to mention this woman by name. She's the only one who isn't mentioned by name. Because you see, as he's reticent to push himself forward, so he's reticent to push his mother forward. But think of it though. Here Jesus stands on the verge of death. He's suffered unbelievable agony. You see, before he set out on his public ministry, he'd probably been the main breadwinner for the family. But during his ministry, he'd have to step a little bit back from his family as he fulfilled the father's call on his life, which anyway, by the way, was probably to Mary's benefit as that sort of took her out of the firing line of the Jewish establishment and her hostility towards Jesus. But here you see, Knowing that at this point his brothers were largely unsympathetic to his ministry at this stage. Here Jesus, so aware that in the coming days his mother will be devastated. Here he places her in the, into the hands of one who he knows will love her and care for her. One who he knows will minister to her out of his own sense of loss and devastation. His beloved disciple, her own sister's son, his nephew, John. But you know, isn't this a comfort to those of us who maybe feel that surely God can't be too concerned about our little lives and about our little problems? Because it's a big world, isn't it, out there? And the problems of this world are many and vast and complex. So how then could we expect a mighty and sovereign God to take an interest in us individually? Precisely because he is a compassionate king. Because mighty and glorious as he is, he cares for us individually and he is big enough and powerful enough, caring enough to be able to meet our needs in such a way that even through our suffering and our trials, 
still he's able to work in us and to make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus and reflect more and more of his glory out from our lives. So here then Jesus is revealed as a suffering king and as a compassionate king. But he's also revealed as a victorious king. And this uh, victory begins to be brought out into the open here for us by John, I believe, in the way that he makes clear that in his death, Jesus repeatedly fulfilled prophecy. That though men and women acted here of their own volition and their own decision, yet all of this was brought by God into his sovereign plan, demonstrating then that God was in control, that God was king at the cross from beginning to end. For example, his four executioners here divide the clothes of Jesus between themselves, which includes gambling to see who would get his seamless undergarment rather than tearing it into four pieces and, and dividing it among them, which would have meant destroying its useful, usefulness and diminishing its worth. But as John brings out, this is a clear fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Of Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Let me ask you then, how could the psalmist, writing hundreds and hundreds of years previously, how could he know that this would be the custom of the Roman executioners who put Jesus to death? And then a few verses later, we read from verse 28 on, where it says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And you see, this is a fulfillment, I believe, of Psalm 69, 21. It says, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. But I... I see is most significant in this. It's actually the way that these Roman soldiers here, touched by a moment of pity, he chose to give Jesus a share of what would actually be the regular daily drink of a Roman soldier, this, this wine vinegar. For you see, what they used to do this, the stalk of a hyssop plant, was actually what was customarily used in Old Testament times when sprinkling of, of some kind was part of the act of worship. So just an example in Psalm 57, 51, sorry, verse 7, Jesus, uh, David says there, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. However, the most significant use of hyssop in the Old Testament was at the Exodus during the time of the Exodus, where there the, the blood of the Passover lamb was taken and sprinkled on the lintels of the homes of the people of God with hyssop as a sign of God's guarantee to them that they would escape his judgment and be set free from their slavery in Egypt. So what then 
does the use of hyssop here then suggest to us that here the ultimate Passover lamb is being sacrificed. Here, his blood is being shed in order to enable all mankind to escape from God's judgment and to be set free from sin now and forever through faith in him. That here, at the cross, in Jesus Christ, at that cross of Christ, the ultimate victory is about to be won by Jesus, our King. With the final stamp on this victory to be found here in those famous final words of Jesus from the cross. Verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now you see, the NIV translation there really actually doesn't do justice to the original language more accurate than it is finished would be something along the lines of it is accomplished. It is complete. You see, the idea isn't simply that it's over, but rather that all that needed to be done has now been done. In what way, way though, at the cross was Jesus' work accomplished and complete? Well, let me just share here uh, one or two comments made by someone who I probably respect most in this world. Uh, my old lecturer at Spurgeon's, Bruce Milne. This is what he says. His response to the Father's will was completed. With his death, his obedience was completed. His passion to do the Father's will and thereby bring glory to him here reaches its triumphant conclusion as he gives up his life at the Father's command. Also, his revealing of the Father's heart was completed. For you see, at the cross, the heart of God was opened wide there for us to see. For there at the cross, we see there the holiness of God laid bare. We see the holiness of God that demands that sin be judged and dealt with. We see the holiness of God that could only be satisfied at that cross as there Jesus gave his perfect sinless life as an atonement for all our sin. But as we look into God's heart at the cross, we see not only his holiness, we also see his infinite, his incredible Love. The love that led God to become a man in Jesus Christ. The love that led him to that cross to do what only he could do. To offer up his perfect life as that payment for all our imperfection, all our sin. You see, this is our God. This is our King. The one who in Christ, in love, paid the penalty for sin that his holiness demanded. He did it all. And he did it all for us. His work is complete. 
He has won the victory. He is the victorious King. He is our victorious God. There's only one thing that we have to do. And that is, we have to make this victory ours by faith. Yes, we need to believe, we need to put our trust in, and we need to give our lives to the Jesus who gave everything for us by faith. We need to make the suffering king, the compassionate king, the victorious king, we need to make him our king. And no one else can do this for you. Only you can make the finished, accomplished, completed work of Jesus Christ yours. Only you can do it. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, we just want to thank you for your awesome holiness and for your amazing love. We want to thank you that when we were lost and far from you, that you never stopped loving us. And that in Jesus you held nothing back, but you gave yourself for us. Father, help us to see. Help us to understand. Help us to respond to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Simon.